Hey. Hello. So a couple months back, Richard and I sat down to talk with our guest for the episode, and honestly, we were kind of blown away. Put in our place, rather, as humans. Right, which is sort of part of the aim of this season, so we appreciated that. Today's episode is about one of the most dominant and abundant organisms on planet. They can alter landscapes and ecosystems, have a strict social structure, herd animals and keep livestock, grow food and produce antibiotics, and no, we are not talking about humans. Instead, easily one of the most misunderstood and underappreciated animals of all time. Yeah, probably not a surprise to anyone listening because of the title of the episode, but who doesn't like a little dramatic buildup? Before we get there, wait, shouldn't we do the intro? Uh, right, sure. Uh, I'm Devin. I'm Richard. And this is Wildlife. So before we get there, I want to introduce you all to an important character in this story. A man by the name of Thomas Belt, who's an Englishman, born in 1832, Newcastle. It's a city on the Tyne River in northeast England, about eight miles inland from the North Sea and 100 miles south of Edinburgh, Scotland. The town itself has a pretty interesting history, actually. Um, it was a powerhouse in the Industrial Revolution, but anyway, as Thomas grew up, he found a real passionate interest in natural history, even joining the local naturalist field club. But career-wise, he found his place in geology as a mining engineer. He spent 1852 to 1860 in Australia, and eventually on a Nova Scotia before he was forced to return home due to a pretty serious injury. But he began to make a name for himself in academia after the 1861 publishing of his work Mineral Veins, an inquiry into their origin founded on a study of the auriferous quartz veins of Australia. Jeez, what a title. I know, right? He did further rock and fossil investigations elsewhere um, and a memoir that would eventually become a classic after being published in the 1867 Geological Magazine, too. But despite the popularity of those publications in certain crowds, those aren't really the ones we're interested in. No, instead, we are more interested in his 1874 book, The Naturalist in Nicaragua. You see, in 1868, Belt was appointed to take charge of some mines there. And he wrote of his four years of adventures in this book, full of these really bold assertions about the glacial history of the country and a lot of really interesting observations that have honestly become pretty widely regarded. At some point during his time there, I like to think he sort of stumbled upon what we're about to talk about next. And it would have looked a little like this. A trail is running through the tropical rainforest, carrying little fragments of leaves. Some of the things they're carrying are 20 times their body weight. And it, it's actually quite spectacular. You can um, uh, see they wear down a whole uh, path, um, uh, trail through the forest. That's our guest for the episode, Dr. Cameron Curry. I'm a professor in the Department of Bacteriology at the University of Wisconsin. So there can actually be uh, literally thousands. And their territories are huge, relatively. And these trails can um, span out more than 100 meters from their nest. Nearly the distance of a football field. Some of these colonies contain as many as 8 million individuals. Leafcutter ants which is more of a category of about 40 species of ants that mostly do the same thing. Ants occur across the, the planet and in almost every terrestrial ecosystem um, are, are one of the most dominant organisms and, and are an incredible group of um, 
insects. Um, the um, leaf cutters are uh, most abundant in the, um, in the tropical regions, um, and they only occur in the New World. So they're most abundant in the New World tropics in places like Costa Rica and Panama and Brazil, um, Ecuador, Peru. Um, but they evolved um, after the, the split of um, uh, South America from uh, the rest of the continents, and, and then uh, when North America and South America came uh, into contact, they spread into into North America. So they're only New World, um, and um, there are leaf-cutting ants in uh, parts of the United States and to the southern regions of the United States, but they're, they do not ex uh, extend into places where there's um, um, a significant uh, winter, a cold winter. Wait, I need to interject. Why, what's up? You're telling me there's no leafcutter ants in Africa? Right. So what the French toast, Lion King? Oh, I know, right? I wasn't going to say anything, but you're you're totally right. There are, are definitely leafcutter ants in that opening scene where they do that cool, like, focus thing on the zebras that are running down below, and then, like, shift perspective to the ants. I feel duped. Same. Unless those were meant to be something else, but I'm kind of doubtful about that. Okay, okay, let's get back to it. So back to Thomas Belt. Imagine him just standing in the jungle, watching these ants go marching in a continuous chain, each one carrying a leaf fragment above their head. Remember, 20 times their body weight. And what do you think they're doing with those leaves? Eating them, I would think, but I know I'm wrong now. I believe the real use they make of them is as a manure, on which grows a minute species of fungus on which they feed. That they are, in reality, mushroom growers and eaters. In other words, farmers. Who is that supposed to be? Thomas Belt. You sounded like David Attenborough more than anything. They're both British naturalists, right? So, anyway, uh, back in his lab, you can actually watch this take place in what is Honestly, the dopest ant farm, ant farm you have ever seen. They even have an ant cam, which is down at the time that we're recording this, but hopefully it'll be up soon, where you can watch these old McDonald's E-I-E-I-O the heck out of some fungus. Pretty cool. To sort of describe it for you, there's this giant glass box with a mock tree inside that's just full of leaves suspended in a mesh, and along the bottom of the container where the ants enter via this long, angled, clear pipe to snip leaves and bring them back through the tube to their mound, which are visible through these glass display windows. So you can get kind of a representation of what their underground activities look like. Here's how it works. Leaf cutters cut leaves and bring them back to their colony where they are munched on into a pulpy substance and then fertilized with ant feces. Hey, call it what it is, ant poop. Yep, ant poop. That fertilized spit wad is added to the top of a garden, a nurtured <clears throat> patch of the fungus Leucogaricus gongoliferus, with a special mix of selected bacteria. Now, an important thing to know here, and this is something we will be covering more in depth in the second half of the season, is that fungi are not plants. They are fungi. And being not plants, they don't possess chlorophyll. And therefore, they cannot do photosynthesis, meaning they cannot make their own sugar, so they have to get it from other sources just like we do. And they do that by breaking those sources down with tiny little secretions and sucking up the juices with these long, incredibly tiny, tubular, straw-like networks. 
and as the fungus and microbes break down the leaves, the ants print out the bad bits like a gardener, tending carefully to their flower bed. While this happens and the fungi sucks up the nutrients from the massive spit wad, they produce these blobular bodies packed dense with all kinds of nutrients that the ants snip off for food. It's actually far more common than you think. We're talking all termites and more than 240 species of ants that grow fungus for food. The origin of this association that culminates in the leaf cutter started in the Amazon basin uh, roughly 55, 60, 65 million years ago. Uh, leaf cutting ants are the most uh, derived group of ants that grow fungus, but there's actually a lot of diversity of ants that grow their own food, and they um, are approximately two, 240 uh, described species of, of ants that grow fungus for food, um, but the leaf cutters oh, wow. are the most derived and represent uh, the ants that form the kind of the largest largest colonies. And this is all taking place down in their mounds, which can be quite large. Curie says about the quarter of the surface area of the average American backyard. What generates kind of this mass of mound is, is the ants um, do an incredible amount of uh, excavation of their underground nest. And so they bring up a lot of soil from underground to make it, their chambers that are uh, subterranean below the surface. It's almost like a huge pitcher mound um, with these little um, openings to, with ants running in, inside. Just an absolutely dense network of chambers. Now, we do this a lot, but it helps to build a picture. So if you just imagine you were to shrink down and hop on top of an ant, Ant-Man style, and ride into the mound, you'd find 50 to 100 individual chambers. And in each of those chambers, you would find an individual fungus garden. That many? That's so complex. That many. So here's what throws me for a bit of a loop on this whole thing. All right, shoot. So my understanding has always been that as far as how ants work, the perceived organization for an ant colony is the result of a bunch of organized chaos. Organized chaos, I love that term. But uh, yeah, sure, the individual isn't all that special and just sort of wanders aimlessly and blindly until it finds something yummy, lays down a chemical trail for other ants to follow, and brings it back to the mound. Dumb individuals working together to make a smart society. Exactly. So how does this behavior make any sense? There, there's something here that feels like a hint of intention, and I don't know what to think about it. Yeah, uh, in other words, how did the ants figure this out, and is it intentional? Right. The foraging behavior of the ants is, is I mean, it's really elaborate, and, and they are really incredibly efficient. Um, to give you kind of a, an idea of how uh, efficient they are, like we, in our very, I mean, we, we maintain a, a fairly large nest of, of a leaf-getting ant in a captivity in terms of our display colony, but it's really not even close to approaching the size of a mature nest. But we've estimated the foraging efficiency, uh, you know, or the foraging activities of our ants as uh, making it, uh, more than 3,000 uh, trips per hour of leaf in health. So, so an incredibly efficiency to, to give you further insight into how the collective behavior of the ants are designed to be efficient. Um, when we first set up our nest, the mesh we use, I used to put at the top of this um, mock tree 
was a plastic mesh, and I put the leaves in, and within days, the ants were already had already cut out holes in the bottom of the mesh, so they didn't have to use the energy to go around the outside, but could go straight down. So wow. within days, they were increasing, decreasing the energetic costs associated with the the time it took and the energy it took to bring the leaves. That also manifests itself in work distribution. Another aspect of their efficiency is they have uh, different size workers that do different jobs in the nest, and the workers that cut leaves are an intermediate size that have been shown to be um, somewhat optimized for uh, the efficiency of cutting the leaf fragment um, and carrying it. So, so this is um, a very efficient elaborate um, process of, of, of cutting leaves um, and, and, uh, and, and, and they've evolved over uh, millions of years to be uh, more and more efficient in their uh, use of and, and decrease in energy uh, in terms of uh, acquiring leaves. So, so it, as you indicated, it, it really is quite um, incredible the foraging um, and behavioral aspects of, of the ants. Now, that dynamic of these leaf-cutting ants and these mature nests um, is the most... Um, uh, these ants uh, that I'm, we've been talking about are in the uh, in genus called Ada, and they form the largest colonies, and they have the most complex uh, behaviors and uh, what we call social structure, which means division of labor and different size workers, and then these colonies can live 10 to 15 years and have 6 million workers. And that's what allowed these ants to develop these sort of megacities, a metropolis, if you will. But most of the ants that grow fungus for food form these really small colonies, the size of a kiwi or an orange. So like small-scale agriculture on backyard farms. Yeah. But to look back at the origins of this... The very beginning origin of growing fungus for food is is really a hard thing to fully figure out because this occurred tens of millions of years ago. And what we see right now in terms of fungus growing is changed almost certainly in many different ways since the beginning of... of the agricultural or the origin of this agricultural system in, in the ants. And so probably arguably the best theory on the origin is is um, that these, the ancestor to ants that grow fungus for food might have started uh, feeding on fungus as a nutrient source, consuming it as a free-living fungus. The fungi might have existed freely outside at the time that this evolved like tens of millions of years ago, 50 million years ago. Perhaps spores and bits of fungus brought back into the colony found a cool, damp place to grow and sort of one thing led to another. And before you know it, they had domesticated the fungi. The theory is also that maybe the fungi purposely uh, adapted, well, maybe not purposely, but they adapted something to attract ants, uh, to use the ants, sort of like how flowers use bees to spread their pollen. And like humans, Ants, too, deal with crop pests. When we domesticated plants and started growing plants for food, we also domesticated the pathogens of those plants, and those, um, over time, evolved to be more and more 
more problematic um, and more of a challenge as, as agriculture uh, intensified. So just like our case in human agriculture, the ants have problems with um, agricultural pathogens. Um, in this case, pathogens belonging to another group of fungi called Escamopsis. And it can be really, really devastating. I found nests in the field that have been completely overgrown by the pathogen, uh, driving out the ants and, and completely killing the whole colony I, wow. in the lab. Occasionally uh, have nests that are devastated by the pathogen where, you know, it, it completely kills the nest. And, and it, so it can be a really what we call virulent pathogen of, of this association. But again, like humans, better than humans actually, ants have developed a way to manage these pathogens. Two ways, actually. So one of the aspects of the, the system that is really exciting and, and important is um, is kind of thinking how the ants have been able to successfully culture uh, fungus for food or farm fungus for food for tens of millions of years in in uh, in response to this kind of pathogen infection um, in human agriculture uh, when we grow monocultures. That's a single type of plant in a large scale. Uh, we have major problems with disease and we have to continually develop new approaches to counter um, pathogens as they evolve to be more and more uh, pathogenic, more virulent in our agricultural system. And, and to think about it, humans have really only been involved in agriculture for a blip of time as compared to ants. So understanding how they deal with disease in the system is is um, is an, an area where my lab spends a lot of our time um, uh, with our research. And, and there's two mechanisms, two ways the ants kind of deal with infection that um, we focus on. And one is a behavioral response. One way they deal with this is by pruning away the bad fungus, but the other is through another form of symbiosis with antibiotic-producing bacteria. And you can actually see this bacteria on the ants themselves. It shows up like this sort of weird white coating, a residual-looking thing, kind of like the white residue that sometimes gets left behind by dishwasher detergent. We'll put a picture up on the website. And the ants have even adapted physical structures that help to aid in the growth of the bacteria. Our evidence indicates that this association between the ants and the antibiotic producing bacteria dates back at least um, 50 million years. So you have this sort of co-evolution between ant and bacteria and ant and fungus and fungus and bacteria and bacteria and fungus, perhaps all the way to the origin of the relationship between the fungi and the ants. It's really quite exciting and interesting and, and there's interesting parallels with humans. We've been using antibiotics to treat infectious disease in, um, in humans uh, since the 1940s, so uh, less than a century. And the ants have been using uh, antibiotics from uh, the same, you know, uh, same types of bacteria for tens of millions of years. And to think humans have already blown through most of the antibiotics we made available and in the process have created antibiotic-resistant superbugs, yet here, Ants have been doing this for millions of years with the same antibiotic. And so one of the things we're excited about actively working on is trying to understand how they've been successful at using antibiotics for tens of millions of years um, in the face of evolution of antibiotic resistance. Um, sure. Which, you know, as you 
I'm sure you're, you and your listeners are aware is a major issue in, in, right. in, human, in human use of antibiotics. So the next time you're about to stomp on an anthill into oblivion for no reason at all, think again. Same goes for termites. They're more than just insects to be exterminated. They are pretty smart. Now we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we have more animal gardeners to talk about, some of which herd livestock for milk and meat. Hey teachers, planning a unit on community ecology, a lesson on antibiotic resistance, mutualism, or symbiosis? Use our episode in your classroom. Start a lesson by listening to all or part of our episode. Afterwards, have students break out into groups and visit Dr. Cameron Curry's website, currylab.wisc.edu, and check out the Leafcutter Ant Camp. Read more about his research or download the game Fantastic Farmers, a game based on the true life adventures of leafcutter ants, which teaches about the ecology of leafcutter ants, symbiosis, and evolution. For more information on which next generation science centers apply, visit the wildlife.blog and type leafcutter, all one word, in the search box at the bottom of the page. All right, we're back. So, you know, termites. Richard, have you ever seen a termite mound? Yeah, like big spires. Pretty cool looking. Right. So, you know, the purpose of that design actually allows for optimal temperature controlled fungi growing conditions in which basically hot air rises above the mounds, which drives this sort of air circulation inside that network of tunnels. And again, back to people. How many people know how to garden at all anymore? At least truly garden without starving or overfeeding half of what they grow and yet you got these termite spires that are temperature controlled yeah you've seen my fern (laughs) oh man (laughs) aside from ants and termites there are a lot of other animals that have adapted these sort of behaviors damselfish ambrosia beetles all 3200 species of them uh, the marsh periwinkle snail spotted jellyfish the yeti crab but ants are the focus of the day so next up Cowboy ants. Several species of ants, like the black garden ant, have actually adapted to herd aphids. But why? For their butt juice. Yeah, yes, butt juice. The, the correct term is honeydew. Okay. Um, it's a sugary sweet liquid that they secrete from their anuses, their, their rears, as they drink the fluid out of plants. Ants will line aphids up, corral them, and even clip their wings off the new cattle to prevent their escape. Some ants have even been shown to intentionally tranquilize their aphid captives to keep them slow and prevent any attempts at leaving. Aphids become so domesticated that some will only secrete the honeydew if an ant milks them. And by milks them, I mean coaxes them into it by gently stroking the aphid. In return, aphids get protection and escort to new pastures from their ant overlords until the ants no longer need them, sometimes eating them entirely. Not to mention the honeydew the ants drink gets divided into two parts, or two stomachs I should say. One for the ant drinking it, and one that'll allow it to puke it into the mouth of a dear friend. Ew, what? Yep, some species of ant, like the Melissa Taurus of South Africa, might just be the only other species on the planet aside from humans that raise livestock specifically for slaughter. Or for meat. They herd tiny armored insects under the bark of trees, and they eat their scales as a source of protein. One thing that Dr. Cameron Curry said is that, as humans, we like to think of ourselves as unique. Like I said, that's kind of the basis of this whole season. We think of ourselves as unique, that 
we are the only ones on this planet who are capable of this sort of um, uh, agriculture type society, this agri-based society. Um, but clearly, there are a lot of other parallels in non-humans, ants, crabs, jellyfish, all those other things that we mentioned. Now, we could sit here all day and describe these relationships to you, but nothing we say is going to compare to hearing it from the horse's mouth. Abigail, are you ready? Hey, guys. So, tell us, what is it like to be ant cattle? So, basically what happens is the ants just, like, line us up on the stem of the plant, usually, and um, we just, I guess, eat, which is cool. Like, that's what I do anyways. Um, and then while we're eating, the ants kind of walk over us, around us, and they tend to, like, eat up our honeydew, which... You know what my honeydew is, right? <laughs> um, anyways, so they eat that up, and uh, once we're all done with, you know, that plant, they'll just kind of move us to another plant. Sometimes, okay, and this is kind of the bad part and why I'm okay with you calling them my overlord, is because they do eat one of us. Last week we lost Greg. Thank God, though, because between you and me, Greg, I mean, you know what the, yeah. That sounds terrifying. That sounds terrifying? Let me try to explain it for you a little bit. It's kind of like you guys with cats. I mean, they just live their lives doing what they do. You feed them. You take care of them. You even clean up their poop for them. I mean, you let them poop in your house and you clean it up, right? And so, yeah, it's not exactly the same, but that's what the ants do with us. They clean up our poop and we just get to eat all day. Now, it is time for Animal Sound of the Week. Last episode, our Animal Sound of the Week was a lynx. This week, a lynx. we've got a new sound. Alright, Richard, are you ready? Um, No. I actually have no idea how to make this sound. I'm going to try to listen to it one more time. Yeah, same. Okay, okay. As always, send us your guesses on Facebook for a chance to win a prize. Maybe not a great prize, but a prize nonetheless. Prize. Prize. Remember, if you have any questions for us that you want or need answered, you can submit those questions by sending us a message on Facebook or by clicking the green Ask TWL button on the front page of our website, thewiredlife.blog. There are no such thing as bad or dumb questions. The whole of human knowledge came to be only after millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of wrong guesses, near misses, and extreme failure. So, never be afraid to ask. Instructions on how to submit your questions can be found at thewildlife.blog forward slash podcast. Remember, The Wildlife is listener, reader, and viewer supported and can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you believe in what we're doing, you can show your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash the wildlife. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the wildlife. When you become a patron, you'll gain exclusive access to content and have the opportunity to appear on our show to ask us questions or help read the credits. 
For sources and a more in-depth look at what we've talked about today, check out the wildlife.blog. As always, if we've made a mistake or got something wrong, please let us know with a quick message and we'll do our best to fix it. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store and share it with your friends. Good day, listeners. Bye.